Good morning to you. Uh, today we're going to take a look at 2 Corinthians, starting in chapter 2. Uh, we'll be in verse 17, and then we will read through verse 6 of chapter 3. So once again, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kazrowski. I serve as the lead pastor here at FAC. Uh, it is a privilege to be with you. And if we've never had the opportunity to meet, I would encourage you to just come up and say hi after service. It would be a privilege to uh, meet you and get to know you a little bit after service. Um, before we begin, just one quick announcement. Uh, it is the time of year again where we are accepting nominations for elders uh, from our membership. So for those of you who are formally uh, members here at FAC, you can actually pick up a nominating ballot uh, at the information desk. They'll have, have your ballot. Um, this is a critical part of how we function as a church, uh, and we'd encourage you to participate. If there is another member here that you feel meets the qualifications of elders, we will vote in. About a, a third of our elder spots um, will be open. Some elders are up for renomination, uh, but there's uh, about a third of our board every year that uh, we vote on, and that comes from nominations from you guys as formal members. And so, uh, once again, ballots are available at the information desk. If you have any questions about the process, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd be happy to walk you through that as well. Um, if you're not sure if you're a formal member, it's a common mistake, uh, and that's okay. Uh, the information desk will actually be able to tell you if you are or not, and, uh, and if you're interested in actually becoming a member, kind of putting your stake in the ground, saying, if AC is my home church, uh, we can take down your information and we can kind of walk you through that process as well. Uh, and so once again, stop by the information desk if that is you. Um, let's turn now to God's word. Uh, once again, we'll read from 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 17. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Would you pray with me? Father, your word is a gold mine of knowledge and wisdom and guidance and truth and power. And so this morning, we, we go down into the gold mine as we turn into your word and, and we commit our time to the hard work of digging deep so that we can come out with the treasure, that, that we may see and know and understand the treasure of your character and your nature and your will. Would you reveal yourself to us? Show us who you are by your word this morning. This is a spiritual work, Father. We recognize that, Lord. And so we call on the Holy Spirit. We turn to him to help us and instruct us in our time together, Father. And in your son Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. 
whenever you pursue a job opportunity in the secular world, there's a high probability that in one hand, you will hold your resume uh, that speaks to your experience in the field uh, that you are pursuing, right? It'll speak to all of the uh, things that you have done in the past uh, in this job. And, and then in the other hand, you will hold a letter of recommendation or letters of recommendation, references from other people who will vouch for you that you are the person capable of doing what the job description calls for, that you should be the one hired in this position, and here are all the reasons why. And even as you go through the interview process, you will give an account for your experience and your skills. The interview, the interviewer will ask you about your resume and ask you about the things that you have done. And perhaps they might even ask you what sort of compensation you have received in the past for such tasks. What have people been willing to pay you in the past for doing these things? Through these interactions, what the employer is looking for, what they are ultimately trying to determine is whether or not you as a candidate meet the qualifications. And the job that you're pursuing will actually dictate what sort of qualifications and competencies are required, what they are looking for in a person. And the gravity and the significance of the role will actually elevate the expected qualifications that are necessary to accomplish the task at hand. And so any kind of hiring body is faced with the question, given the job and given the qualifications and the competencies necessary, who is sufficient for these things? Who is qualified for the job? And this is actually the very question that Paul asked at the end of verse 16. We didn't read it this morning. We actually read it last week. But it does set us up nicely for what Paul goes into as he writes this letter to the Corinthians this week in the verses that we'll study this morning. If you were to look at verse 16, the second half of it, Paul asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? Now, what are these things? Well, let's recap what we looked at last week. Right By way of recap, these things that Paul mentions are the things described in verses 14 through 16. Right? Paul described his role as an apostle, as, as one who is being led like a prisoner of war, as a, as a slave uh, by, by Christ. He's being led by Christ as a slave of Christ. And last week we talked about how the life of a believer in Jesus is actually one that's marked not by triumph, but actually by, by suffering and by weakness and even death. How we're actually to follow Jesus as he's commanded by picking up our crosses, an instrument of death on a daily basis. Our whole life is really to be marked by just the self-sacrifice of humbly submitting our lives to God, to Christ and his leading. But Paul mentioned that there was a purpose behind this, right? Last week, we talked about this, how in doing so, in suffering and in submitting to weakness and in humility, humility, submitting to Christ, in doing so, we actually reveal who God is to the world. 
And this is what Jesus did as he submitted himself to the, to the cross by giving himself over to death and, and, and resurrecting on the third day. He revealed the character and the nature and the will of God. And when we do that, when we mimic that, when we follow that pattern, we become what Paul described as an aroma of Christ that just kind of wafts about everywhere. And this aroma is the knowledge of God and people know who God is when we as followers Submit to suffering and, and weakness and give ourselves over to that. And there are many people that look down that road, the triumphal procession as Paul describes it, and say, that is a lot of loss. That is a hard job that we as believers have been called to. And so Paul finishes and poses the question in verse 16, He says, in light of what I've just described and in light of the difficult job of surrendering ourselves to God, in light of the full understanding of what true, authentic ministry looks like, who is sufficient for these things? Who is really qualified to do what God has asked of us to do? And that's the question at hand this morning in this passage is who is sufficient for these things? And the reason that Paul asks this question, the reason he introduces us to this idea of validity is because his own validity in this situation, his own validity as an apostle has come under fire, as we've spoken about in the past, from these traveling preachers that have come into the church of Corinth. Now these these traveling preachers, It's said that they have been influenced by the sophists of the day. A first century sophist, as one writer puts it, uh, he was a public speaker with a big public reputation. They were the master articulate speakers of the day, and they made a living off of what we would actually call their brand. And it didn't even really matter their message. It was their brand that they were selling and people would buy into this and they would earn a living from this. And so you had these other traveling preachers who came into the church of Corinth, claimed to be messengers of God, who were influenced by these sophists. And they had these ideas in their mind about what truly qualified somebody as a gospel preacher. They bought in to this cultural influence which said that personal achievement and personal success and, and, and how much money you make and what others are willing to say about you, that is what constitutes the core competencies of a messenger of God. That's what qualifies that. And they were so confident that they had these things. And they were also confident that Paul didn't have these things. So in response, Paul wants to address the issue at hand. He asks, who is sufficient for these things? Paul says, you want to talk about qualification? Let's talk about qualification. I'll play your little game. All right, let's, let's, let's look at this together. And then what ensues in the following verses is really a challenge. Paul challenges the cultural understanding of sufficiency and qualification. 
In these verses that we'll look at this morning, Paul actually pushes back and he confronts the worldly ideas and view of what it means to be sufficient. He turns the cultural values of success and qualification on its heads and then he reflects on the nature of authentic ministry and the authentic ministry worker. And he does this by actually contrasting himself with these other public speakers in relation to two very specific critiques that were brought against Paul. We're going to look at them both. The first critique in verse 17 um, that these other preachers brought against Paul is that he did not accept payment from the Corinthian church for his preaching. Now, this reminds me of one of my favorite movies where the villain is holding off on doing something and the villain is asked, why, why have you not done this yet? And the villain responds, I've learned that if you're good at something, you never do it for free. It should always come as a co- at a cost if you're good at it. And this is the mindset of the particular traveling preachers that come against Paul. If you're good at something, Paul, never do it for free. You should be charging for what you're doing if you truly are a, a, a gospel preacher. To them, it's this worldly concept that you get what you pay for. And the more that you pay for something, the higher the standard and the higher of quality of the product. And so if Paul doesn't accept payment from the Corinthian church, what does that say about the quality of his teaching ability? If you don't pay him, what does that say about his worth? What does that say about the worth of his message? If his message was so valuable as he claims it to be, then, then he would be, he would have charged a very high price for you to pay it. And so Paul addresses the critique in verse 17. What does he say? He says, for we are like so many, in reference to these other traveling preachers, we are like so many, we are not peddlers of God's word. This is actually a pretty harsh metaphor. The the peddler is recognized in this context as the one in the marketplace who aggressively attempts to sell goods. And there was a negative connotation associated with these peddlers because peddlers in the ancient world were known for their shady business practices. They would seek dishonest gain. They would prey on the ignorant patron all to make a quick buck. Now, what's important to note here is that Paul isn't saying that paying the preacher is wrong. I understand there's a conflict of interest here (laughs) as I sit here and preach. And so I don't have much to say other than what God's word has to say. Paul actually instructed the church in 1 Corinthians 9 that you should pay the preacher a livable wage which FAC does, and I'm very thankful for that. And even the fact that Paul didn't accept payment from the uh, Corinthians is actually unique to that church. He, he did accept payment from other churches. Other churches supported Paul so that he could live. He didn't accept payment from the Corinthian church, and there was a reason for it, which we'll save for another day. What Paul is addressing here is the motivation of the preacher. Right, Paul, to call these other preachers as, as peddlers of God, casts a shadow over their motives. 
He's saying that they are only preaching for the lucrative kickback, which is a terrible reason to preach. And you don't have to flip through the stations of your TV to find that this is something we still deal with today. Right, the, the, the preacher on the TV that says, call us at this number and I will pray a prayer of blessing over you and all you have to do is give us your credit card number in one easy payment of nineteen ninety nine. This happens. We still have peddlers of God's word today and it's a terrible reason to preach. And not only is it terrible, but it will ultimately affect the message that they preach. It's ironic that they would accuse Paul's message as being worthless since he didn't accept payment when in actuality, because of their own greedy motives, it's their message that is probably compromised. Because if the preacher's motivation is strictly to make money, then they will treat God's message like cheap merchandise. To them, they will ultimately view the message, they will view God's word as a product that they are selling, a product that they are peddling. And in effect, they will dilute the message of God, just like the peddlers in the, mic- in the marketplace. The peddlers who sold wine would dilute it. They would literally water it down so that they would make more of a profit off of the product that they were selling. So of course, a peddler of God's word will say things that you want to hear and say things that, that, that they, they will try to inspire you and they will try to make you feel like a better person, that you have this infinite worth. They will sell you a message that you can do it, just reach down deep, that you are strong enough, that you are powerful enough, that you are capable enough deep down inside. That is the gist of the message of the peddler, right? No preacher who's in it for the money will preach the full and whole counsel of God. They will not talk about our sin. They will not talk about the need of a savior in Jesus. They won't touch weakness. They won't talk about our shortcomings, No, they will only focus on the things that will bring in the most cabbage. They will tickle your ears all the way to the bank. Paul says, we're not like that. No, we are not like those who are peddlers of God's word, verse 17, but rather we are men of sincerity as commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak Christ. Paul's saying, you know that we're sincere because we have suffered in order to minister to you. And there, are, there, there is no money keeping us tethered. There's no logical reason why we would continue to minister to you unless we were sincere. If they were paying Paul, there'd be a logical worldly reason why Paul would endure the pain that the church in Corinth has caused him because he'd be in it for the money. But he's not taking payment from them. And so what other reason is there that Paul would continue to minister to the Corinthians other than the fact that he is a man of sincerity in his message, which has been given to him 
from God himself. And he's preaching Christ in the sight of God. That's Paul's motivation right there. If you want to know what his motivation is, why he's a man of sincerity, he's not in the, he's not in it for the money. No, he's in it because he is speaking Christ in the sight of God. God is his audience. He's a man of sincerity because God Almighty has given him an assignment. We, we preach God, Christ in the sight of God. Paul's saying, I have to stand before God someday who gave me a task and I am going to have to account for what I told you and what I preached. That's my motivation, that I may be able to please him who sent me. That, I, that at the end of the age, I would stand before God and God would smile down on me and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. Paul says, I've got one person in mind when I'm preaching you Christ, and that's God and what he's going to say about me. Which actually brings us to the second critique that Paul addresses here in the passage. You know, we, we, we get the understanding sometimes that people find worldly validation or sufficiency based on what they make. Right? What's your salary? What's your hourly wage? And, and, the, and the more that you make, it makes you more validated for some reason or sufficient. That's once again a worldly view. Uh, and not only will people find worldly validation or sufficiency based on what they make, but also on what other people will say about them. Right? That's as good as, uh, as gold, right? What, what will other people say about me? How will they praise me? And so this was another critique that these traveling preachers had of Paul in the original context, that he didn't carry letters of recommendation. In the ancient world, much like today, letters of recommendation were a testimony of somebody's uh, of credibility and of validation. And they were actually quite common in the first century because the communication was so slow and unreliable. It's not like you could go on the internet Google somebody's name and find out if they're legit or not. Like, is this person the real deal? I don't know. They didn't have the internet. And so it was a normal practice in this time for traveling speakers, preachers, to actually carry letters of recommendation with them as you would a passport or other travel, travel documents. Now, once again, Paul is not discouraging the practice in and of itself. Paul often wrote letters of recommendation for his other co-workers. We actually have some of these letters of recommendations within Scripture that he wrote for his co-workers. But what Paul does here is he's challenging the purpose and the usefulness of them in his own context. And in verse 1 of chapter 3, if you were to look at it, he draws attention to the glaring absurdity of this critique. Just a reminder, Paul founded the church in Corinth. He started it and spent a year and a half with them and ensured that there were leaders in place so that it could live on after he left. And so Paul asks a rhetorical question of absurdity in verse one. He says, really? <laughs> like, you really think that I need to carry around a letter of recommendation? You want a letter of recommendation from, from me? You want to send me on my way with a letter of recommendation from you? No, I'm not going to do that. 
I, I don't need to carry around a, a letter of recommendation from you uh, or, or to you. Why? Verse 2, he answers the question himself. Because you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Paul says, just look in the mirror. You don't need to look any further than yourselves to know the validity of the ministry. Because the very existence of the Corinthian church bears testimony to Paul's ministry. And then Paul explains in verse 3 why this is so. How they themselves are a letter of recommendation because they have experienced the transformational power of the Holy Spirit. And that right there is the essential validation of all true gospel ministry. It's transformation. That's what we're looking for with whatever we do. It's transformation. Let's look closely at verse 3 to see what type of transformation has occurred in the Corinthians. How do they show that they are a letter of recommendation, as Paul claims? First, Paul mentions that they are a letter from Christ. In other words, they have been authored by Jesus. Jesus is the origin of such letter. Paul didn't write this letter. Jesus wrote this letter. And that says something about Paul and his ministry. Typically with letters of recommendation, you know this, the one who actually writes the letter, the more prominent that person is, the better it reflects on the one whom the letter is written about. And who holds a position of higher authority and prominence and significance than Jesus himself? And so by explaining that Christ is the author of such a letter of recommendation, Paul is claiming better credentials than any of his opponents ever could. So Christ is the author of the letter. It is from Jesus. And it says that Paul is the one who delivered it. Or another good word is that Paul is the one who ministered to that. The picture that we get here, once again, in the metaphor, is that Paul is the instrument that Jesus used to write the letter. If, if, if Jesus were to pick up a pen, Paul is the pen. Now, Paul plays a secondary and a very passive role in all of this. Christ is doing the legwork here, but Paul is allowing Jesus to work through him in the lives of the Corinthians. Christ writes the letter of recommendation, using Paul as an instrument. And this letter isn't like these other letter of recommendations that you'll see. It's different. It's different in two ways, Paul explains. There's two different contrasts. First, this letter that you guys are, this letter of recommendation, it isn't written with ink. It isn't written with ink. It's actually written with the spirit of the living God. The contrast here is the different means of writing. To write something down with ink alludes to the work and effort of human hands. Right? I pick up a pen and I jot my notes down with ink. And everything I write with the ink in my hand is from my mind. And therefore it is limited and it is skewed and it is biased and it is insufficient. And not only that, but ink over time fades. The paper on which it's written is easily destroyed. But this letter of recommendation 
that Jesus wrote is not written with ink. It's not written with human hands, but written with the spirit of the living God, which is permanent. The the, the spirit is the very agent at work here. And so if someone were to pick up this letter of recommendation and, and observe the Corinthians, they would not be reading words concocted out of human effort or work or human creativity, or cleverness, or wisdom. No, they would be reading the spirit of the living God. They would see God in these Corinthians. That's the first contrast. The second is that such a letter is not written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The contrast here is what is is the, the mode of the document? What is the document, it's, it's not the tablets of stone, it's the tablets of uh, human hearts. Now, there's some Old Testament imagery here at play here. If you're even somewhat familiar with some of the Old Testament stories, um, when you hear the phrase tablets of stone, you will most likely think of the biblical character of Moses. And we know that this is an allusion to Moses because later on, we'll get to here next week, Paul actually compares his ministry to the ministry of Moses. So this tablet of stone is directly talking about the Moses story where God engraved on the mountain the Ten Commandments on what? Tablets of stone. Now the Ten Commandments that were written on tablets of stone, they really served as a representation of God's law as a whole. There were, there were actually hundreds of commandments that God gave the Israelites to follow and to honor. He told the Israelites, this is how you will honor my way. This is what I want you to follow. The tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, though, were like a symbolic representation of the law as a whole that God required the Israelites and humankind to follow. The issue for the Israelites, though, is that the law... Having been written on stone, it was external. And they didn't understand it. It was foreign to them. They couldn't follow it. And it was powerless to save them. It was powerless because it relied on the strength and the knowledge and the sufficiency of the Israelites to follow it and to live up to its standards. And they failed over and over again. They proved that they couldn't follow it, that they were not good enough, that they were not sufficient. And even the law written on tablets of stone is a reminder for us today that we are not good enough and that we are not sufficient enough to live up to God's holy standards. We fall short every single day. And so there has to be another way. And here is the glory of this letter that Christ has written. Is that this letter was not written on tablets of stone outside of us, but on tablets of human hearts. It's written on our hearts. Transformation has occurred. This is actually something that God promised he would do through the prophet Jeremiah. I don't have the verse up there, but in Jeremiah 31, 31, he speaks of a new covenant. He speaks of a, of a new arrangement, if you will, uh, with his people. And God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. God 
has written the law within us. God's perfect law is no longer external, but it's internal. It's no longer foreign to us, but it's actually known to us. It's no longer powerless to save, but but now through Christ and his sacrifice and his resurrection, the law is now given to us in our hearts. And now we have the ability to obey and follow God. And God accomplishes this with spiritual surgery. I want to take you to the prophet Ezekiel who writes to this end. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. This is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. And this is what he says. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, when you become a believer of God and you trust in Jesus as the sufficient one, the one who laid down his life for us, God gives you a spiritual heart transplant. He gives you a new heart because the old one won't do. There's a story of a man named Philip Blayberg. He was the second person in history to receive a successful heart transplant back in 1968. And while he was still recovering in the hospital, the surgeon on one occasion came to Blayberg and asked him if he would like to see his old heart. And so in the following evenings, one of the following evenings, the doctor took Blayberg to a specific hospital room, went to a cupboard, and pulled down a glass jar, which contained Blayberg's heart. And he handed it to him. And Blayberg became the first man in history to ever hold his own heart. And so he asked the doctor technical questions for about 10 minutes. And then he took one final look at the heart in the container. And he said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. He didn't say this, but what he's saying is, this is my old heart that that caused me so much trouble that was trying to kill me, that was killing me, that had it not been removed and replaced with something new, I would have been dead. As a believer, and when you trust Jesus, God removes that old dead heart of stone which caused so much trouble and which was, was killing you spiritually. And he, he gives you a new heart. And then we are sufficient in the eyes of God because transformation has occurred in our hearts. God, God, God puts the new heart in you and, and he says, you, you don't, You don't have to fulfill my law in the way that I've required you because Jesus did that on your behalf. And so now you are justified. Now you are declared innocent because what Jesus has done for you. We are justified before God and his statutes, not because of anything we've done, but because something that has been done in us, in the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the living God, and something that has been done for us in Jesus at the cross. Not because I've become a better person, but because I've become a new person. I'm a new creation. And now, 
As there was a time where I hated God's law and wanted nothing to do it. Now I desire it. And I thirst for it. And I seek to honor God in his ways. Our old carnal heart is incapable of following God's way. And it has been removed and he has placed a new heart within us, one which the law is actually written on. And this right here is the nature of gospel ministry itself. True gospel ministry occurs not when we have the most inspirational or eloquently crafted sermons or emotional experiences or the, just the, the perfect programs conducted and manufactured by human hands. No, true ministry work is not written by human hands with ink on stone tablets. And any sort of perceived ministry success that finds its origin in human wisdom or human craft or human hands is a cheap knockoff. It's not the real thing. It's fool's gold. And there are many people that are duped by it. No, Paul describes that true gospel ministry, true transformation only occurs by a touch from the Spirit. It's a letter written by Christ and delivered by really a bunch of nobodies. A bunch of nobodies, however, that raise their hand and say, Lord, here I am, send me. I don't have much to offer. I've got breadcrumbs, but I'm willing and, I'm, and, and, and just tell me what you would like me to do, Lord, and I will do it. And then God takes those nobodies. He takes the breadcrumbs and he writes on the hearts of men the spirit of the living God. And that is something that you cannot forge. And, and this is the confidence that Paul has as a gospel worker. Through this passage, Paul just oozes confidence. He has so much confidence here, but he doesn't have confidence because somebody is willing to pay him a certain amount. And he doesn't have confidence because of the praises of men and what they say about him. He has confidence because the spirit of the living God transformed the hearts of the Corinthians. The Corinthians' own transformation demonstrates Paul's sufficiency. And so when Paul asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? Paul, unapologetically, in confidence, surprisingly says, I am. We are as gospel workers, we are sufficient for these things, but not because of anything we've done or because of who we are. And so he reminds the Corinthians in verse 5 of this, that such confidence, such sufficiency, such qualification, it doesn't come from me, but it comes from God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything, as coming from us, but our sufficiency, he writes, is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Right there, Paul's saying, I wasn't sufficient, but I willingly followed and obeyed, and God has made me sufficient. He has qualified me. 
And just as our salvation is something that occurs by God's grace, our sufficiency to accomplish his will and be obedient to his call also happens by God's grace. Paul recognizes that his own insufficiency is met with God's divine sufficiency. And that is the formula for gospel work. It was the pattern for Paul. It was the pattern for all of the prophets in the Old Testament, and it continues to be the pattern today. God does not call you or choose you for a specific role or task because you are strong enough or capable enough or sufficient enough. No, he calls and chooses you because you are actually weak enough. He looks for the weak ones. It's the self-confident ones in ministry that we should be weary of. We should question the people that, that walk into a ministry role or walk into a ministry setting and say, I've got this. I know all of the answers and I'm the right man for the job. Those are the ones that we should question. Because as captains choose their teams for a pickup basketball game, God is the captain who looks at the short, scrawny kid on crutches and says, I want that one. I want that one. He's on my team. And you know what? We're going to go and win the game. And then you will see that I am God. You will see my glory and how great I am. And so as you sit here this morning, whatever you are called to do in your life right now, if God is impressing on your heart a role or a job or any kind of ministry work, please do not let your weakness be a deterrent. Do not let your fear of insufficiency and your insecurities override you. Because we have a God who says, you aren't sufficient. But you know what? My grace is sufficient for you. And so would you just, in all of your fear and all of your anxiety, just take that next step and trust that my grace is sufficient for you? That just as I saved you out of the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of light, that I will equip you with everything you need when the time calls for it. I'll close with a quote from Oswald Chambers. He's famous for his book, his devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. Chambers writes that God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the complete abandonment of reliance on them. He writes all through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because of their unusual dependence on him, made possible the unique display of his power and his grace. Would you pray with me? And Father, it's very easy to sit and ask who is sufficient for these things. And it's very easy and tempting to sit here and say, not me, not us. Uh, But we trust you, Lord, uh, even if it's reservedly, that you will equip us for all of our needs to accomplish your will. Father, we have an accuser. There, There is 
a spiritual war going on even in our own minds and we have a, an accuser in the devil and, uh, and his henchmen um, and it's easy for him to either trick us one way or the other, the confidence. It's easy for him to seed lies into our mind that we are good enough and capable enough and super confident in ourselves, Father. But there are also people here today that are struggling on the other end where the accuser is telling them that they're not good enough and that they can't do anything worthwhile in God's kingdom, Father. And you have come forward and you have said, well, we are not capable while we can only offer crumbs, God, you say, I, I can take those crumbs and I can work with it. I can transform them into a beautiful gourmet feast. And so, Father, as the accuser comes, would we not focus on ourselves, either our own confidence or our own insufficiency, Father, but would we turn our minds and fix our gaze on Christ, who overcame on our behalf? And in your holy name I pray, amen.